This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Neha Navarapu, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Adam Auerbach, who, along with Dr. Tariq Tachil, is the author of the book Migrants and Machine Politics, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2023. Dr. Auerbach is an associate professor at the School of International Service at American University, and Dr. Tariq Tajil is Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Adam, for taking time out to chat with me today. Once again, my congratulations on this achievement of a book. I really wish Tariq could join us, but alas, it's really hard to coordinate across three different schedules. And anyway, I'm just so glad to get a chance to chat with at least one of you about your brilliant book. Oh, thank you so much. And and please let me just start by thanking you for having me on the, the New Books Network podcast. It's, yeah, it's really especially exciting to be in conversation with a, a scholar, you know, doing such exciting work on urban India. So really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Adam. You're, you're too kind. Uh, before we begin talking about migrants and machine politics, I would love to get to know you a little more. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your academic journey? How did you become a political scientist and how you got interested specifically in urban politics and local governance. And, um, you know, I would love for you to speak a little bit about your first book, Demanding Development, which I like absolutely loved and was so inspired by. Oh, thank you so much. And that's such a fun question. Um, Yeah, I mean, if I can go, I guess, way back uh, to to college. um, And actually, you know, this is someone that you know, um, uh, Professor Mike Maniates, a, a professor of mine in college, um, just really inspired me, um, not only to, you know, care and think about, you know, politics, political economy, especially everyday politics, um, how people um, seek to advance, you know, their well-being and security, um, but also um, South Asian studies and in India in particular. Um, you know, he really encouraged me to go um, and study in India in college, uh, which I did. Um, and it was, um, yeah, I studied in Jaipur uh, for three or four months and just, you um, which is absolutely fascinated um, by society and politics in the city. Um, and it really solidified, you know, not only my interest, again, like in, in politics and society in India, but also, you know, learning Hindi. Um, but yeah, it, w- it really wasn't until graduate school. Um, I, I you know, did my graduate work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and there was a really great opportunity during my third year to do an internship, um, even as a PhD student. Um, and I did it at the National Institute for Urban Affairs um, in Delhi. And I really feel like that put me, um, it gave me really sort of a, a front, you know, front seat view um, of how JNNURM, 
um, you know, as you know, a large you know, urban development program that unfolded in the 2000s in India, um, you know, how it was working. Um, we were getting all this survey data back from cities throughout India, um, particularly on informal settlements, slum and squatter settlements, um, their levels of access to basic public goods and services, um, in addition to indicators of sort of governance quality um, across cities. And it just really struck me that not only across cities, um, but even within individual wards and cities um, and across neighborhoods, across informal settlements, there was just immense unevenness um, in the extent to which sort of the municipality or state had extended things like water, roads, electricity, streetlights. Um, so it really made me curious, like what, what is driving these sort of disparities across these settlements that otherwise face um, so many common vulnerabilities um, stemming from, you know, weaker absent property rights, um, you know, vulnerable locations within cities, you know, along riverbeds or mountainsides, um, along railroad tracks. Um, what, what, what is the politics um, behind this unevenness? Um, and so, you know, again, through more sort of pre-dissertation field work in Jaipur and Delhi, you know, I simply started going to, um, you know, some of these informal settlements, um, you know, Jugi Jopri's in Delhi, Kachi Basti's um, in Jaipur, these different names for slum and squatter settlements. Um, and it just struck me um, how rich um, these forms of informal governance were um, within these communities, that there were sort of crystallized, identifiable, informal leaders. Um, they were doing activities um, to mix levels of success, um, to try to um, stop eviction and get access to these basic public goods and services. Um, so this this really sort of like launched me into you know what became my dissertation and then um, my first book, uh, demanding development. That you know the central puzzle and question of it really is to try to understand um, what explains this variation in public goods and services. And you know what I arrive at um, you know in the book you know based on you know. Uh, two years of you know ethnographic fieldwork and um, you know a large survey um, across over 100 uh, settlements in Jaipur and Bhopal, um, the two cities that I ultimately ended up studying, was that we you know we really need to look at the internal political organization of these settlements, in particular the ways that they're connected through political party organizational networks um, to larger party organizations in the city. Um, so yeah, that's um, you know sort of the the book um, you know and journey in a in a nutshell. Thank you. That was uh, really, really helpful to anchor our conversation about your new book as well. And I would love to know, how did you come up with the idea for this particular book project, Migrants and Machine Politics? How did it all begin? And how did you end up working with Tarek, your co-author on this? And um, I guess, why did you end up anchoring your study in Jaipur and Bhopal? Was it a continuation of Demanding Development's um, study? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, um, no, it's fun thinking back, like, yeah, now, like, you know, what is what is a decade? Um, it's, it's amazing how time flies. But, you know, right um, after I'd finished my dissertation, um, Tarek, you know, who I had not met at that point, um, also had begun studying, um, you know, politics and informality in India cities, um, you know, in particular through the lens of examining circular migrants in India. Um, as you know, there's an enormous population of over 100 million people um, who um, go back and forth between the countryside and the city um, to find employment. Um, and so he was really engaged in this, you know, really exciting research agenda and trying to understand how these circular migrants cooperate or don't cooperate in the city. You know, what is the role of, um, you know, ethnicity in that cooperation? Um, and at the same time, I, you know, was working on turning demanding development into a book. 
Um, and so we got in touch and just started, you know, talking about all of these, you know, sort of issues. Um, and, you know, we're jointly sort of fascinated in questions that ultimately ended up animating um, migrants and machine politics. You know, how are these informal leaders um, in informal slum settlements? Um, how do they emerge? You know, a lot of these settlements are, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old. Some are much, much newer. Um, you know, sl- squatter settlements in particular are largely a post-independence phenomenon. Um, but, you know, these low-income migrants moving to the city, um, you know, at, at its origins, um, you know, there aren't crystallized sort of forms of leadership. So how, how does this develop? Um, how do these networks that, um, you know, have been examined um, in the city that do all these um, bridging um, activities for, um, for the urban poor, how are they constructed in the first place? Um, so, yeah, we started off, um, you know, trying to understand leadership formation, and then that sort of turned into understanding leadership responsiveness to residents. Um, we were going to do joint field work, um, you know, in 2015, 16, 17, sort of like every, it seems like every summer there, you know, we were in Jaipur, Bhopal together. Um, and I think, um, you know, in addition to being interested in the themes um, that underpin the book, um, I think both of us, um, you know, lo- derive a lot of inspiration and energy from doing field work. Um, you know, we, we both love field work and um, really enjoyed, you know, doing field work, um, you know, together. Um, and yeah, just, you know, one article became another article. Um, and, you know, we sort of amassed, um, so much data, um, and, you know, after years of field work and, you know, conversations and writing, um, that we decided to, you know, launch into writing, um, you know, the larger book, um, based on all this work that we had done together. Um, yeah. And why Jaipur and Bhopal? It's such an interesting, um, you know, question, you know, as you know, I mean, there's, you know, over, you know, probably at this point, over 60 million plus cities in India. Um, an enormous constellation um, of cities under 1 million people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it was tough. And I remember being asked this a lot, even in graduate school, you know, you know, motivate your case. Like, why are you going here? And like, <laughs> I, I, I always wanted to answer that question by like, well, I, I need to go somewhere and I can't right. go everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, and every city seems different in lots of different ways. So I'm not quite sure um, how to sort of explain this, but I mean, ultimately, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly sort of path dependencies in this, you know, I, Again, going all the way back to college, I had, you know, I had studied in Jaipur. Um, I felt like I got to know the city really well. Um, you know, I had invested a lot of time in learning Hindi, um, you know, and, and Tarek, of course, is, is fluent in Hindi. Um, and so I think, you know, because we wanted to do ethnography and, and interviews and intensive qualitative work, um, you know, we were going to go somewhere in sort of the Hindi speaking belt. Um, and, you know, because of prior institutional connections and, you know, personal, you know, connections and friendships, um, Jaipur seems like a great place to go. Um, and, you know, Bhopal is another capital city of an adjacent state um, with, you know, a, um, a little bit less of a population than Jaipur, but, you know, similar along a number, you know, of respects, um, along a number of factors, you know, as, as Jaipur. And I think another thing is, I mean, um, you know, again, um, you know, going anywhere, you know, could, could be, you know, important and thinking about it comparatively is important. But I think um, both of us were interested in, going to places like Jaipur and Bhopal that are a little bit smaller. Um, you know, there's a lot of work, um, you know, in Delhi and Mumbai and Kolkata and Bangalore. Um, and for, for good reason, those are big, important cities. Um, and there still needs to be much more work done on those. But most people living in informal settlements in India do not live in one of the mega cities. They live in one of these medium-sized cities or these much smaller sort of towns and cities spread throughout the country. And so while every sort of state and city is going to have its, you know, idiosyncrasies, 
um, we thought it'd be interesting to sort of bend our empirical work um, towards something that is perhaps a little bit more representative, um, you know, of sort of the average experience of people living in these settlements. No, I'm so glad that you brought that up because that was one of the first thoughts that I had, even while reading De- Demanding Development, that um, it is a bit, I think, refreshing, uh, if I can say that, to to read uh, about urban politics that is not centered in either Mumbai or Delhi or uh, Chennai, Bangalore, uh, Calcutta. And um, I think uh, this book, too, does a great job in making us uh, think about uh, cities that are that are not the mega cities that are over, I mean, yeah, I don't mean to say overrepresented in a bad way, but definitely uh, represented by a lot in academic literature, at least. Um, so the book uh, is based on such an interesting mix of ethnography and experimental methods. Uh, can you say a bit more about how you went about collecting data for this book project? What were some of the issues you ran up against? And what did blending ethnography with experiments enable you to see as researchers? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for asking that. And, you know, to go back to something that I said a little bit earlier, I think both of us really like to think of ourselves as, and I, I know I can speak for Tarek uh, with this, um, like mixed methods researchers, um, you know, because, you know, we really think that, um, you know, each of these approaches, um, you know, has really unique strengths. Um, and we think that their combination um, can illuminate a lot. Um, so, I mean, you know, sustained ethnography and interviews really just opened up this world to us um, in, in, in such an empirically rich way. Um, of course, there's a, there's a huge literature, um, you know, on informal settlements in India and elsewhere, um, but we really wanted to, you know, ground ourselves in understanding process, history, the formation of these um, networks, um, how people interface with the states, um, ways that are, are quite difficult to do in sort of a cross-sectional survey, which has its own strengths, and that's the reason why we did that as well. Um, but we, you know, and, and this, this, this is both for my sort of um, first book, Demanding Development, and the current book, you know, the importance of understanding process, the, the formation of identities, um, why people are doing certain things. Um, you know, one of the most fascinating, you know, sources of data um, that we encountered that ended up becoming really um, foundational um, to our book and, and my earlier book as well um, is what we refer to as informal archives. Um, you know, interestingly, um, you know, these informal leaders in India's slum settlements obsessively keep documentation um, over the course of decades um, on their correspondence with officials, you know, petitions asking for, you know, water, electricity, roads, streetlights, um, you know, asking not to be, um, you know, evicted, um, community meeting notes. Um, most of these communities in, in Jaipur and Bhopal you know, have their own Vikas Samiti or Moldahadud Sudarn Samiti. So these development associations, these development councils, um, where people have, you know, keep notebooks of community meeting, you know, notes, um, you know, political ephemera, you know, old, um, you know, party manifestos and posters from, you know, two or three decades ago. Um, and so we, we ended up collecting over 3,000 of these documents um, across a large number of case study settlements, you know, that allowed us to triangulate um, alongside oral histories um, you know, to really get a sense of the, the micro histories of these communities, you know, for which, you know, you would never be able to go to a formal archive, you know, and reconstruct the history of, you know, um, you know, whatever settlement um, you're studying in, in, in either of these cities or elsewhere. Um, so, you know, the, the qualitative was just absolutely foundational. Um, and it wasn't just in the service of getting to the quantitative and getting better quantitative data. Um, it was essential and important. And, you know, I think, you know, our, uh, you know, again, I think I can speak for Tarek, our sort of favorite activity, um, you know, in the book, 
Um, but we did want to compare. Um, we wanted to go beyond a few settlements to look at patterns. Um, and so we um, you know, also did sort of large scale um, quantitative surveys across 110 settlements in the two cities um, to be able to see you know, our qualitative insights um, ex- extending to a larger number of, of settlements. Um, and we also do um, survey experiments in the book um, to allow us to um, be on firmer ground to make sort of causal statements um, about why people are making certain selections um, and, and decisions in the formation of these political networks um, in India cities. Um, but ultimately, you know, it really allowed us to sort of really triangulate across a large number and diverse number of sort of data sources um, so that we felt more comfortable to hang our hat um, on, on certain findings. Yeah, and I, I was very curious to know, were there any learnings from this, any faux pas that were, that were made that you had to sort of go back and think about when you were designing the study? And oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, that, oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, certainly like doing field work together and, you know, even when we were doing the surveys, um, you know, it was really important to us to be with the survey team every single day um, in, in the fields. Um, you know, this, of course, you know, and this is, this was a great privilege that we were, we were able to do this. Um, and I don't think it was like, uh, um, we're both sort of obsessive and wanted to micromanage. I think we like, you know, for, for morale, um, and, you know, wanting to learn from the survey as it was unfolding. Um, yeah. And certainly to, you know, to make sure that the sampling process was unfolding correctly, you know, we were with the team every day. Um, so yeah, like all these months of field work together, there was definitely, you know, a lot of laughs, um, not necessarily about the the field work itself, um, but yeah, I think we you know we have you know fun doing field work um, together. So yeah, no, I mean I can't think of, uh, and I would tell you, um, I can't think of any like super goofy um, sort of uh, faux pas, you know, in the you know in the data collection itself. Um, but I think you know again you know to go back and um, you know to the importance of the qualitative field work. Um, yeah, I think both of us would have been nervous, and this is a style thing, but I think both of us would have been nervous if we had just sort of like showed up and done a big survey um, and not really sort of known, you know, how are these communities sort of organizing themselves? How do they make claims on the state? Um, so I think it, it minimized, you know, some of that sort of, uh, you know, ambiguity about like, what are, what are we doing and are we measuring things the way that we should be measuring it? Um, you know, it, it really sort of, yeah, the qualitative part, I, th- I think really sort of, um, you know, grounded, um, you know, the, the quantitative work then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it really shows the way the two methods have been blended into a narrative in the book. And one thing that I really enjoyed about Migrants and Machine Politics was it was so well-written and so engaging. And especially as someone who, I get very intimidated by um, quantity anything. So I I will admit that when I started reading the book, I had a moment of uh, apprehension where I was like, will I understand some of the the more quantitative uh, sort of analyses? But I think it's really a testament to how well-written the book is that I didn't feel a sense of, uh, alienation from the data at any point because I felt like uh, both of you were sort of guiding the analysis with explanations and you know careful reminders of what we are to see and glean from the data really really well um, but yeah so you know it was great and I, I can't wait to teach uh, a few excerpts from this book because I, again I feel like it does such a great job at capturing the best of both the methods um, and is so engagingly written um, so migrants and machine politics, uh, substantively, uh, tackles such a key question at the heart of social and political trajectory of cities in the global south, which is that 
how do poor migrants get politically incorporated into big growing cities? In particular, the book delves rigorously into probing how informal authority emerges in slum settlements, what the role of brokers is in mediating political equations, and how slum leaders connect to parties and bureaucracies within the city. All very familiar questions and issues that have been at the heart of uh, urban scholarship uh, and at the heart of everyday working in cities, but also have become the stuff of gritty films and web series that capture the underbelly of life in Indian cities, right? But one of the most important interventions you make in the book uh, is both theoretical and methodological, of course, is that you approach a study of the urban political machinery from the grassroots level. In other words, rather than viewing urban poor as being passively subject to the power play of elites, the book reveals rather vividly unacknowledged forms of agency amongst the urban poor. That the book does this while also accounting for the systematic state exclusion and repression that shapes the lives of urban poor migrants is very compelling. So could you speak a little bit about how the book conceptualizes a framework for the study of urban politics from a grassroots level and what leverage does that give researchers analytically speaking? Thank you so much. And you know, thank you for the kind words about the book. I mean, it, it, it means a great deal coming from you. Um, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, the book, the, its orientation um, is very much sort of um, from the ground up. Um, you know, Tarek and I are both political scientists. And, you know, the two key literatures um, that we, we speak to in the book are those on urban party machines. And this literature, you know, as a as a sociologist, um, you know, coming out of Chicago, um, you know, I'm sure you're well, I'm sure you're very well aware of, you know, what is now almost a century of, of studies on urban party machines, um, you know, going back to, you know, these studies on, um, you know, Tammany Hall, um, the Democratic Party machine in New York City, um, you know, in addition to, you know, a, a literature that's quite close to that, um, the literature on clientelism and distributive politics, both of these literatures you know, have made, you know, really important contributions to our understandings of, of distributed politics and, and representation um, and development. But overwhelmingly, um, they sort of, they, they approach these structures and the relationship between sort of party elites and brokers in the urban poor from the top down, um, in particular through um, an understanding of the importance of enforcement. Um, so as you know, and, and this is absolutely not unique to Indian cities, um, you know, there's work on this, incredible work on, you know, cities and Latin America, you know, Southern Europe, the United States, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, that in cities, um, parties um, oftentimes see and approach the urban poor um, as communities of highly vulnerable people um, with which to exchange, you know, basic services, um, jobs, um, you know, security from eviction for the vote. Um, and so this quid pro quo emerges between the urban poor and political parties that is both symbiotic, um, but is also incredibly asymmetrical, um, you know, um, giving sort of, um, you know, um, small extensions of, um, you know, services or other acts of much more mundane forms of vote buying, um, you know, in the Indian context, you know, bottles of desi daru, you know, uh, country liquor, um, cash. So certainly these sort of activities are happening. Um, but what this larger sort of literature collectively um, sort of renders um, is an urban poor um, and low-income voters that are sort of locked in these very sort of rigid clientelistic relationships where they're being targeted for things and are expected to turn out at the ballot box um, and support that party. Um, and there's brokers involved that will mobilize voters 
uh, but it's, it's very sort of top down um, in orientation focused on how can we make sure that voters are returning the favor at the ballot box if we extend them these things and these clientelistic relationships. Um, and so our qualitative fieldwork, our ethnographic fieldwork, our interviews um, really sort of um, destabilized and ran against the grain of a lot of what we think the conventional sort of um, thinking is on how these party machines operate. Um, at the same time, you know, b- both of us, you know, have learned so much from, you know, what I think is a, a much richer, you know, literature um, coming from geography, sociology, anthropology um, on the politics of the urban poor, which really stresses agency. Um, however, um, you know, you know, going back to, for, for instance, Partha Chatterjee's work on political society, um, that the urban poor often have to turn to these sort of fragmented, um, you know, capricious relationships with state actors to get things um, and, and, and using things like political parties um, and protests um, to be able and, and, and political intermediaries to get those things. Um, the networks that connect the urban poor to the states um, are largely sort of seen as this sort of fixed, these fixed structures that operate just above the urban poor, but are not being shaped um, by preferences and activities by the urban poor. Um, so our, our bottom-up framework um, identifies a number of really key, what we think are key insights into understanding how do these party machine networks form? And then once we understand how they form, it will help us understand how they function. So for example, competition really importantly underpins you know, each of the chapters in our book. Um, that informal leaders in India's slum settlements need to intensively compete with one another on an everyday basis for the support of residents. Um, and in almost every settlement, there will be multiple um, informal leaders who are competing with one another. And so what this does is it opens up the door to significant agency and choice by ordinary residents in selecting who am I going to go to or follow in the settlement. And that dynamic um, helps shape you know, the, the very most grassroots, intimate base um, of these party machines in India's cities. Then... Residents need to compete with one another for the attention of the informal leaders. Um, they are faced with a barrage of, of problems, you know, as you well know, um, over getting access to you know, running water, electricity, getting their children into uh, public schools, um, you know, finding jobs, dealing with police cases, you know, an endless list of problems that emerge in these neighborhoods. Um, and these informal slum leaders only have so much time and resources. How are they deciding um, who to select um, to help? Um, we then go, you know, above the settlements um, to look at competition among patrons um, in extending party machine networks, you know, into the settlements. Um, and so looking from the bottom up really reveals intense competition and choice. Um, and what this does then is it structures each of the subsequent chapters um, in the book um, where, we, but where we sort of break off one piece of the anatomy of the machine um, from the bottom up and looking at how this competition and selection um, fuels the emergence of that one part of the network, um, leading to, um, you know, unanticipated findings that, um, yeah, look forward to sort of talking about that. I, I'm yeah. sure we'll get into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Absolutely. You know, thanks for uh, setting the stage for uh, our discussion of each of the chapters that I'm really excited to get into. And uh, so chapter two of the book delves into one of the most fascinating and ubiquitous figures that keeps slum settlements in the global south moving, the figure of the broker. After you explore how and why political brokers emerge in slum settlements, what were some of the findings that surprised you and how do these findings speak to popular and academic narratives around brokerage? Thank you. I mean, the, the idea of the broker um, and the specific actor that we study, the, the slum leader as a broker, um, you know, is, is central, you know, of course, to the book. Um, and as you know, as you noted, you know, chapter two really, um, you know, looks at the emergence of these actors. Um, you know, very often in the literature, they're sort of taken as, you know, a static given. You know, there are these people that are kind of good at doing these go-between activities. If you need to help, if you need help navigating the state, there are people that will sort of help you. Um, and these people can also help political parties um, mobilize voters during elections. How do they come to be in the first place? Um, and informal settlements, slum settlements, um, are interesting um, empirical sites to ask this question because they have emerged so rapidly and so recently um, that we're able to sort of trace the formation um, of these actors um, and looking at sort of the, the staffing changes and changes in the distribution of support across different um, informal leaders and slums um, over, you know, just a matter of a few decades. So, I mean, you know, a first surprising thing, and, you know, I'd already, you know, sort of mentioned this, that the, the, the importance of residents in selecting their informal leaders. These are not actors that are thrust upon them. Um, political parties don't parachute these people into settlements. Um, these informal leaders in India's slum settlements, they move and migrate to the settlement just like any other residents. Very, very few of them, you know, and, you know, as you know, you know, we were able to survey about 630 of them across these 110 slum settlements. Very, very few of them um, had any kind of like political aspirations, um, you know, before moving to the city that, oh, I'm going to move to the city and move into an informal slum settlement and become a leader. Um, this happens in, in essence by accident, but because of particular characteristics that they have once they move to the settlement. Um, but how does this, um, you know, agency and selection sort of unfold? You know, it was it was fascinating to Tarek and I um, to see these different pathways through which residents select their informal slum leaders in their settlements. Um, and what we do is we group them into sort of these two pathways. One are these episodic moments, usually in response to um, a planned eviction or just really intensifying underdevelopments. You know, the nullies, you know, the drains are, are clogged and overflowing. Um, the monsoon rains came and washed away, you know, part of the road where people in the community will come together. They'll do like a, you know, a betak, you know, they'll all sort of sit there um, and deliberate um, over who should be their neta or their adyaksh, um, you know, their, their informal leader in the settlements. Um, and so, you know, one pathway are these episodic moments of people sort of deliberating over who should be their, their leader. Um, the other pathway are these everyday fluid decisions that individual residents and their families make over, we have a problem, who should we go to in the settlement to help us solve that problem? Because among ordinary residents, there is um, intense despondency um, over, am I able to go to the Nagarnigam, the, the municipality? Am I able to go to the district collector's office to actually get this thing? Um, you know, only 12% of our survey respondents thought if they went by themselves to one of these government officials or politicians that they would actually get attention. And so this huge chasm between ordinary residents and the states um, 
you know, creates a demand for these intermediaries. Um, and so people make these also these everyday decisions over who am I going to turn to and support? And that then generates the distribution of support across informal leaders um, in the settlements. So what we do, you know, drawing on qualitative data, um, observational survey data and experimental data is try to understand, okay, so if residents have all this agency over picking their informal leaders, what are their preferences for these informal leaders? Um, and we find things that we think are, are very surprising. So residents do hold preferences to have um, fellow members of their jati, you know, their subcaste, um, their religion, and people that have migrated from their state of origin. Um, but most often, they don't have that choice um, in practice. You might want someone of your jati to be a neta that you can go to in the settlements, but there isn't somebody um, of your jati um, that is a leader in the settlements. Um, and so we find these rich, multi-ethnic, you know, inter-caste, inter-religious, um, inter-sort of state of migration networks that form in these settlements, not necessarily due to sort of a cosmopolitanism, but because of the, the material compulsions of needing to get things done um, and turning to someone that can really help you do that. Um, and just to put a footnote on that, I mean, these, these settlements are incredibly diverse. Um, you know, the average settlement in our sample has a fractionalization score of uh, 0.8 in terms of its cast, you know, meaning that if you just randomly picked two people out of the average settlement in our sample, there's an 80% chance that they would be of a different jati. Um, that number is about 0.2 for religion. Um, so most settlements um, in Jaipur and Bhopal that we sampled have both Hindus and Muslims. Um, you know, in, in Bhopal, there's um, even settlements with, uh, you know, Ambedkar Buddhists. Um, there are settlements in Jaipur that... Um, Part of the religious composition is Sikhs um, and um, diversity along the dimension of the state um, that the migrants have moved from. So in these incredibly um, uh, diverse uh, contexts, um, people might have these sort of generalized preferences for people that are like themselves ethnically, uh, but they very rarely have that option. What they're really um, centered on and what our most sort of powerful finding is, is, the, is the importance of education. Um, among aspiring um, slum leaders, that this is the most important um, factor um, that allows them to successfully understand things like eligibility criteria, writing petitions, navigating state institutions to help residents in their settlements. Um, and that really sort of um, trumps, um, you know, even ethnic considerations, um, you know, in, in, these, um, in these communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, that was very uh, useful to note, because in the next chapter, from the emergence of brokers, we move to figuring out the patterned logics that dictate which slum residents brokers choose to assist. I found this chapter to be very compelling, as it really highlighted how the priorities of brokers had a lot to do with their own ambitions around their political careers, and how much brokers thought about their own reputations uh, with regard to what you call cultivating clients. Could you say a little more about how these careerist ambitions work alongside or against perhaps more apparent factors such as religion, caste, and ethnicity in determining who slum brokers favor and who they do not? I'm so glad you asked this. Um, you know, and continuing with the theme of these, these brokers, um, you know, so much of the literature, especially from political science, centers on election time activities. Um, and, and certainly these, these settlements, um, you know, really come to life politically, you know, during election season, you'll see, you know, graffiti of the, you know, the open hand of the Congress party, the Kamal, uh, the, the lotus flower of the BJP, you know, posters are plastered everywhere. Candidates are coming and giving speeches. 
Um, and these, these slum brokers, these informal leaders are, are really central to mobilizing residents and organizing these events um, and talking to people. But what we, what we find is what, what's going on in between elections is much more important to understanding both the rise of these informal leaders um, as well as their responsiveness downward to residents, which, as you note, is, is really sort of the motivation of Chapter 3. Once these actors bubble up into this position, what shapes their decision-making around who to help in their neighborhood, given their limited time um, and resources? So these, these, um, these slum brokers, um, they are um, you know, very entrepreneurial and careerist. Um, they have aspirations. Um, very few of them will ultimately end up moving out of the settlements, um, but they have um, hopes to someday get a party ticket um, in particular, to fight in a municipal election, um, you know, not once had we come across an example where a popular um, slum leader was given a ticket to fight um, in an assembly constituency for a state election. Um, you know, in large part because of the incredible amounts of money that is required to to fight in state elections. I mean, even municipal elections are, are quite expensive and can involve you know lakhs and lakhs of rupees. Um, but it, it, it is within the reach um, of the most popular slum leaders, particularly those residing in large settlements, to get a ticket um, to fight in an election. But other um, you know, slum leaders wanted to move up the party hierarchy, um, building more namchin, you know, more sort of social prominence for themselves, um, getting more goodies um, for their increased popularity and position. Um, you know, these are very complex um, you know, individuals that where it's easy to sort of brush aside their activities as just sort of rent-seeking, um, you know, and they do do a lot of that. Um, if a resident comes to them and asks for help getting a ration card, you know, that could be five, 600 rupees. Um, and if you ask the, you know, informal slum leader um, about this, they'll say, look, if I'm going to spend an entire afternoon at the district collector's office, why should I not be compensated for that? So they get this everyday sort of stream of rents from res- helping residents. During elections, um, they, can, they can often get quite handsome amounts of money um, by um, doing um, voter mobilization activities um, in their settlements. Uh, but they're also residents of the settlements. So they'll say, look, like, I, I also want to pave road to drive over. I don't want to drive over dirt road. I want the teacher to show up um, and teach my kids. Um, so they have, they have multiple sort of you know, reasons for doing the activities that they do. Um, but in thinking about um, sort of their long-term prospects, um, they want to, um, and this is really what chapter three is about, um, expand and solidify their reputation for being effective problem solvers in the settlements. Um, that they're not just sort of targeting a narrow plurality of people um, in the community. Um, these are not political constituencies. Um, you know, the hope is to get everybody behind you um, in the settlements. Um, and so what this does is it creates a politics that generates what we think are some surprising findings. So um, settlement leaders deliberately avoid cultivating a reputation for only helping their narrow jati, for example, um, their subcast. Um, they will deliberately go out of their way to weave together multi-ethnic coalitions within the settlements. Um, because these places are so diverse, if, if you seek to only build support among your narrow group, um, that's only going to take you so far. Um, and so not only through sort of our survey experiments, but um, also through observational survey data, um, you know, asking and observing settlement leaders and the people that they're helping. Um, you know, Hindu slum leaders are, are assisting Muslim slum residents and vice versa. People of different castes are assisting one another. Um, again, you know, stemming from the, you know, the compulsions of wanting to get stuff done on behalf of residents um, and the desire to build as broad of a base of support um, among slum leaders um, as possible. Um, 
also um, in deciding who, who, to, who, to, who to prioritize in the settlements, um, looking towards those residents who have the loudest sort of speaker, um, you know, have the, have the best ability to broadcast their reputation um, um, for being a good problem solver. Um, and so they disproportionately will favor and uh, prioritize, for example, residents that have been in the settlement for longer than newer arrivals. Um, because those people who have been in the settlement for longer tend to have denser social networks within the community, um, have greater sort of social standing. Um, and so by helping them, you're sort of, um, you know, getting the rumor mill um, to help you in a more expansive way than someone that had just arrived that has fewer friends and connections in the settlement. They're also more likely to target people like, you know, the Pan and Bibi Walla, um, you know, outside of the settlement, or the Dukandar um, at the Kirana Dukan, you know, the you know, the small shopkeeper um, in the settlement, because, you know, these are, you know, as, as I'm sure you've seen many times yourself, um, sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the centers of social life and gossip um, in the community. Um, so they're, they're very careful about crafting their reputations um, and allocating their time and resources in ways that expand their reputation um, to become as popular as possible, because that, that is the currency um, that they use to exchange for patronage from parties and that fuels their rise within party organizations. Yeah, thank you. And going beyond the confines of the settlement or the addas that emerge at, at the, um, the you know chai stalls or pan shops, um, chapter four tackles a different aspect of the political machine. The factors that decide the selection of local brokers by party patrons for formal inclusion within the party organization. You argue that competition and rivalry shape these choices, but also that the structure of competition is not specific to any one political party. So this uh, similar structure of competition plays out, whether it's BJP or Congress, right? Uh, so I would love for you to say a little bit here about the factors that determine the selection of local brokers as party candidates and why paying attention to this mechanism matters to study to studies of urban politics broadly. What are the stakes, in other words, of paying attention to this linkage between uh, local brokers and party candidates? Oh, thank you. So you know, this is really a part of the book where we then pivot out of the micro world of politics within the settlements and can see how those communities are then being connected to the larger currents of politics in the city. Um, so in this chapter, um, as, as, as you note, um, you know, we, we surveyed um, over 300 ward councillors um, and politicians at the city level to understand through their eyes then, in this sequential construction of party machines, how do they extend limited party positions um, among what is ultimately an army um, of potential political brokers in their constituency. So, you know, the average ward size um, in Jaipur is about 25,000 people. Um, it's a little bit smaller um, in Bhopal. But even in the average ward, which is obviously relatively smaller than an assembly constituency at the state level, there's usually multiple informal slum settlements um, in that ward. And there's going to be dozens, if not literally hundreds, of um, informal slum leaders that, could, that they could be extending their networks to. Um, and, you know, these party positions are, are very coveted um, among informal slum leaders, and they're scarce by design. Um, you know, we had one party leader in the city tell us, you know, we, we can't just hand these positions out like prashad, you know, sort of religious um, offerings. Um, we need to, you know, there can only be one, you know, president of the BJP at the, at the booth or the block. 
Um, you know, there can only be so many treasurers um, or vice presidents, these different organizational positions, which within each one of these committees within the, lar- within the party's organization in the city. Um, so competition among, uh, for these positions is intense um, among India's slum leaders, which begs the question then of if we go out of the settlements and look at the decisions of political patrons in the city, how are they allocating these, um, uh, these positions? So our theoretical framework in the chapter really focuses on these sort of trade-offs and thinking around, is this person going to be loyal, um, not only to our party brand, but to me as an individual? You know, as you know, once you sort of open up the black box of, of, of the political party um, in India cities and certainly outside of India, in India cities, factionalism is rampant. Um, you know, people have you know, their own sort of personal followings, even within the party sort of structure. Um, there are, sort of, you know, um, fragmented um, factions all the way down to the grassroots. So loyalty is not only understood in terms of, you know, is this pe- person going to um, be a BJP loyalist or is this person going to be a Congress loyalist? Uh, but is this person going to be personally loyal to me um, and assist me in my upward climb um, in the party? Separate from that are ideas of efficacy. You know, is this person going, is this person effective in mobilizing voters? Um, it, and, but also, is this person um, have efficacy in terms of being popular among residents? So again, drawing on sort of our qualitative fieldwork um, and our surveys, um, we find um, what we think are really interesting findings about what the preferences are among these political patrons in the city over selecting um, informal slum leaders. Um, First, um, they prioritize people that share their own narrow jati, um, unlike um, the decision-making that goes on within the settlement itself, um, which we see as sort of strong evidence for wanting to have sort of personal loyalties, um, that there's sort of a large literature, not only just in India, um, but elsewhere, that shows the importance of ethnicity as a heuristic, um, that this person belongs to my group. Um, uh, we have sort of shared sort of norms and understandings of reciprocity, um, and this, that this can sort of grease the wheels um, of, um, you know, exchange between the two of us. Um, we, we, you know, perhaps not surprisingly finds, you know, the co-partisans are favored. Um, so people also, uh, par- patrons also um, place importance on the person being a, a party sort of loyalist. Um, but also interestingly, we find that they, they also emphasize the education of informal slum leaders. Um, and then digging into this deeper qualitatively, um, we find that, um, these patrons in the city are well aware of what the ingredients are that makes for a popular slum leader, because ultimately they want to give these positions to people that are popular, because that popularity is going to help that person mobilize voters behind them. Um, and so they, they realize that education um, is so important in underpinning um, efficacy and claim making that they too place emphasis on that as well, knowing the preferences of ordinary residents. Um, and you know, they see this on a daily basis. Um, you know, if you're sitting around in a ward counselor's office, um, there will be a stream of um, uh, brokers um, coming either by themselves or alongside residents to ask the, the, um, the ward counselor for resources or help with something. Um, and they get a, a clear sense of the qualities of these um, in, uh, informal slum leaders um, as people that are more educated on average than the or average resident, they are the ones writing the petitions. You know, they are the ones pointing to different sort of state programs that residents want access to. Um, and so this is yet another sort of data point in emphasizing the importance of education, um, which is, is such a key sort of factor in shaping efficacy. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And the final chapter of the book tackles the final piece of the puzzle going, uh, you know, moving from this particular part of the urban political machine to then thinking about what determines whether a petition for local public goods will ultimately be successful, right? And this really gets at the heart of, I guess, the final destination of how urban poor seek political representation and responsiveness. Uh, so who gets excluded and by what, what logics? You argue that credit claiming is a core mechanism through which politicians make decisions on what petitions to deem deserving of a response. Can you say a bit more about how this credit claiming works and what complementary processes affect decisions of urban politicians with regard to which local public um, goods or asks to support? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so this last empirical chapter, um, you know, as you just described, um, looks at this sort of final decision making um, sort of points of these um, ward counselors also have limited resources and time. How are they allocating their responsiveness across different settlements in the city? Um, and, and, you know, the a theoretical intervention that we seek to make in the, in the chapter is this, you know, emerging literature on state, state and political responsiveness oftentimes looks at sort of the claims of individuals that are unmediated for private benefits for themselves. Uh, but so much of politics um, and development in these communities revolves around group-based claims you know, groups or the entire community asking for things like a road or a series of streetlights or a new water tank um, or a ration card camp. Um, and, you know, building on the rest of the book, very often those claims are being mediated. Um, so what shapes political responsiveness when politicians need to consider not only um, the, the request being made, but the broker who's making that request, as well as the neighborhood that that broker is coming from? Um, so it's sort of this three-level decision. Um, so exactly as you noted, um, credit claiming um, really sort of shines through um, both in terms of our, our findings, but also our theoretical expectations. Um, I'd be curious to hear if you've, you've seen some more things in, in Hyderabad, um, but the, you know, the landscape, the physical built space is littered um, with efforts at credit claiming by politicians um, in some settlements. Um, you walk up on a settlement and there'll be you know, a huge sign um, noting that you know, this politician, the, the MLA or the ward counselor um, has given this much money to pave this road or build this navi, or um, they will plaster a poster or spray paint a water tank. Um, you know, when a, a new school is built or a mandir, you know, a temple is being inaugurated, um, they will be sure to be there um, at the ribbon cutting ceremony, giving a speech, handing out, um, you know, food, all of these efforts um, to cut through all of the potential ambiguity um, of who gave me this thing through the eyes of residents. Um, yeah, I mean, when, you know, you know, you know, given the complexity and the nebulous nature of the states, you know, if, if you ask residents, you know, where, where, where did this water tap come from? You might, you might oftentimes get the response, well, the, the Sarkar, you know, the government gave it to us. Um, well, the Sarkar could be a lot of things. I mean, it, it could be, you know, the, the ward counselor, the MLA, it could be the Jalbalon, you know, the, the waterworks, you know, it could be any number of sort of bureaucrats, politicians, or the institutions in which they work. Um, and so politicians want to cut through that confusion and say, I am the one that gave this to you. Um, and so what we find, um, building on our qualitative fieldwork and our surveys, um, is that those goods that lend themselves to having this ambiguity cut through, um, that can be easily tagged 
and durably tagged. Um, so things that can be tagged with the politician's name and things that will be in the settlements for a long period of time that residents are constantly interacting with are privileged over those things that are more short, short-term and sort of effuse um, in their uh, provision. Um, you know, so for example, um, like a ration card camp um, would be less favored, for instance, than a water tank. A water tank, everybody's going to go there every single day. They're going to see the politician's name every single day, and that water tank probably isn't going to go anywhere. Um, a ration card camp is important, and it gives the politicians some opportunities to show up and say, hey, I got, I, you know, I'm setting up this camp, and now you all have access to subsidized food and fuel, those of you that are eligible for the ration card. Um, but um, it's going to be a one-day thing, and then it's gone. Um, so credit claiming um, based on the physical characteristics um, of the good um, looms large in driving the responsiveness of politicians to the claims of these brokers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And I just like really appreciated how uh, each chapter was so interconnected and interlinked and really like spoke back to the findings from previous chapters and giving us this sort of holistic um, picture of the urban political machine uh, in, in with such, um, I think, sincerity to detail. And um, yeah, so again, congratulations on the book. And thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me today. But before I let you go, I would love to know what you're working on right now and what newer work we can hope to read by you in the future. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, lots <laughs> of, um, at least I think, are you know, exciting projects. Um, Sort of unfolding at the at the moment. So yeah, I think like three sort of bigger things at the moment. Um, one, um, so I, I guess Tarek is not sick of me yet. Um, so the two of us, um, along with um, Shikhar Singh, um, who just finishes his PhD um, in political science at Yale, um, the three of us um, are working on you know a large project on um, local governance in India's small towns. Um, so there's, um, you know, as I, you know, as, as we sort of discussed at the very beginning of the conversation, um, there's this massive population of towns, you know, under 500,000 people, under 100,000 people um, that actually house, um, I mean, depending on what you use as the cutoff, um, about half or even more of India's urban population. And so India's urban story, um, at least half of it is happening in these, you know, quite small um, towns that fall under India's 74th constitutional amendment. They're governed as urban spaces, um, but they are, they've been marginalized um, largely in terms of um, investments by the state. Um, their political economies are much different. Their built space is much different. Their demographics and migratory patterns are much different. Um, and so we're centering this new sort of research agenda on uh, politics and governance um, in India's small towns. Um, so we recently finished a large survey of politicians across 60 of Rajasthan's Nagarpalikas, uh, which are the smallest sort of urban units of government, um, and we'll be doing a large survey this summer across citizens, politicians, and bureaucrats um, in Rajasthan's Nagarpalikas um, to understand a range of different issues, um, one of which is this really surprising underspending that occurs in the average small town, um, that these towns, as you know, um, most of their sort of revenue comes from fiscal transfers from state governments and the central governments. Um, there's quite little sort of own source revenue collection um, through taxation and fee collection in these towns. Um, but many of these towns are spending um, significantly less than what they have like in the coffers. Um, and that's particularly surprising to us during our qualitative field work. Um, it's not because of a lack of want. Um, you know, roads need to be paved, um, you know, lack of sewer systems and drainage. 
but there's money sitting in bank accounts. Why is this happening? Um, so much of the project will revolve around understanding sort of local capacity um, over governance and public spending in these little towns, um, as well as a, a several other themes. So yeah, I look forward to keeping you um, updated on that. Um, another project um, that I'm um, doing with Tanu Kumar um, at the Claremont Graduate University um, is on politics in India's urban periphery. Um, again, as, as you know, it's, it's so exciting to talk to a sort of a fellow, uh, you know, urban studies scholar. Um, you know, the edges of India's cities are rapidly transforming um, in terms of their built space, governance over land, their demographics. Um, and so in Jaipur, um, we've been studying um, what we're referring to as peripheral private developments. Um, these private developers um, at the outskirts of the city, buying large plots of land from farmers, dividing up um, the land into, um, you know, neighborhoods with gridded roads, very sort of middle class in nature. Um, but the the Jaipur Vikas Pradikaran, the development authority, um, is very unevenly absorbing these neighborhoods um, into the formal governance structures of the city and unevenly extending services to these neighborhoods. Um, and again, the, you know, these neighborhoods differ from, you know, um, slum and squatter settlements in, in many ways. Um, most importantly, they're sort of their origins um, and sort of this planned yet still sort of informal um, way, as well as the demographics um, of residents within them and the pathways that they seek authorization um, from the Urban Development Authority. Um, so this, this project will look at that, as well as this other sort of cast of actors uh, that are so important at fueling the transformation of land um, at the urban periphery, including the, the boom mafia, you know, the, the land mafia, um, and this deep nexus between sort of, um, sort of these land brokers, the land mafia, um, as well as uh, local politicians. Um, then the, the third and sort of final thing that I'm working on that will hopefully become sort of my, um, a solo book project of mine um, is actually not in cities, um, quite the opposite. Um, I've become really fascinated in India's Forest Rights Act of 2006, um, which, um, and, and I was really inspired by looking into this, honestly, spending so much time in Bhopal, um, where there's, there's a considerably large Adivasi um, population in many of the informal settlements, including Gond Adivasi, um, describing, you know, this thing that's going on where, um, you know, we're able to make a claim for a patta um, in our village in the forest for the first time ever. You know, as you know, um, you know, the British essentially rendered large swaths of um, people residing in forests um, as encroachers in the 1870s, 1880s, um, during the, the rise of imperial forestry. Um, and, you know, that in many ways has been like wholly carried over even after independence. Um, and, you know, we've gone through these different periods of joint forest management and other sort of, um, you know, governance forms in India's forests. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, um, after the launch of the 2006 Forest Rights Act, there's been this really surprising variation, um, you know, stretching all the way from eastern Gujarat all the way up into the northeast um, of unevenness and the success with which um, people residing in forests, not just Avivasis, um, have been able to actually secure a title for themselves or their village. Um, but I'm also just interested in how this is transforming local state society relations um, into India's forest lands, um, particularly between you know, people residing in the forest and the forest department. Um, which is sort of the, the primary sort of face of the state um, to many people residing in forest land. So, um, yeah, I've, I've already been able to do sort of archival work for this um, in Delhi and, and London, and I'm hoping to do sort of more ethnographic field work, you know, in the in the in the coming year or so. 
Yeah, I mean, all the three projects sounds really, really fascinating. But I, I, I did a double take when you talked about uh, not doing urban politics stuff for your solo book project. <laughs> but the the forest rights project sounds really, really interesting. And um, you know, I'm so excited to hear uh, to read um, more of your work. And all of these three projects hold enough variety to um, to I think entice all of our listeners. So that's really exciting. And yeah, thank. you. Thanks again, Adam, for taking time out to do this. I really appreciate it. It was like such a joy to kind of go over the book um, with you, especially since I finished reading it about sometime last week. So it was really nice to kind of look back at some of the arguments and uh, appreciate the elegance and the sophistication once again. Oh, th- thank you so, so much on behalf of both me and Tarek. And um, just really appreciate you know your time and reading the book so carefully. And yeah, I enjoyed the conversation so much. Thank you.